Now, those of you uh, who will remember back over Jericho Ridge's history, this is, uh, we're coming in at this next Easter to year number seven as Jericho Ridge. And when we were first starting out over in the high school cafeteria next door, the very first message that was ever preached at Jericho Ridge was on generous living which is uh, one of our core values here. And so this runs very deep and has very strong roots uh, at Jericho around the way that we think and the way in which we organize everything from our budget to the way that the staff spends their time uh, to the way in which we model that in life groups and in many other different places. And one of the things that uh, the leadership team takes as part of their responsibilities is a, a modeling role in this. And so our elders team uh, does, from my perspective, an excellent job at modeling generous living in all aspects uh, of their life. And so this morning we have a, one of, a former member of our elders team here uh, to preach this morning. I'm going to ask Arnie if he would come up at this point. Uh, Arnie Friesen and his wife Judy have been part of Jericho for a long time. And then this last year they moved to Abbotsford, and Arnie works uh, with a sister denomination, uh, Mennonite Church Canada, and in the area of stewardship. And Arnie's role is to help develop generosity across uh, the whole life and culture of the churches and leaders and individuals that he interacts with. Now, in order to actually do that, though, from where I stand, you have to actually practice what you preach. And it's a bit of a challenging uh, piece then to, to uh, say, well, I want to call you to generous living. And Arnie and Judy really have modeled this in so many ways for us. You've modeled it for us by pushing us as elders and saying, do you know what? I think we could really resource missions more uh, deeply in our, in our general budget than that. I think we could demonstrate this in our lives as leaders in the way in which we open our homes. You've modeled for hospitality and generosity in that way for us. You modeled it for us on the soccer team even in when some of our attitudes, mine included, got a little out of control. Arnie would kind of get right in there and say, you know what, dang, this is not consistent with the way in which uh, we've called each other to live. And so Arnie has done this many years and faithfully. And so Arnie, uh, when you transitioned off of the elders team and moved to Abbotsford, we promised that we had a gift for you, except we didn't get it ready in time. So uh, we were a little bit behind on that. So we have it here for you today, and we want to present this uh, to you. This is a <coughs> plaque saying, Recognizing Excellence, and the Board of Elders and Congregation thanks Arnie Friesen for faithful service developing and modeling generous living. Hmm. And so we want to present this to you just as a token of our gratitude and appreciation for the way in which you have held up this value for us consistently throughout the life of Jericho Ridge. And uh, so I think that, that deserves a round of applause. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. It's very nice. So um, Arnie is going to lead us in our teaching time this morning as we open God's Word, the passage that was read uh, already for us this morning by Jared and by Curtis. And we are wonderfully grateful to have you and Judy back with us to challenge and continue to challenge us in this area uh, as you model and lead uh, out of your own life. So thanks, Arnie, for being here this morning. Thank you, Brad. 
I'm just going to place this down here. I'll make it so that I can see the generous living part right there to remind me. Thank you so much, Brad. Thank you for that wonderful welcome and introduction. It's a pleasure to be back. Uh, we're still technically members of uh, Jericho Ridge. So in a sense, you haven't totally gotten rid of us. We, we do attend Northview Community Church in Abbotsford. So we're still within the larger family of Jericho Ridge. Well, this is a daunting topic. The generosity factor, the spin-off effects of the giving cycle. Let me just start off with a story. Uh, there's a story of two men who were stranded or marooned on a tropical island. And, um, of course, there was no hope of being rescued very quickly. So thought one man. He was quite agitated striding back and forth and uh, just wondering what would become of them. The second person was much more relaxed. He thought, we're out on a tropical island. Might as well enjoy the sun and just relax a little bit. The first person, of course, became so agitated and he finally blurted out, don't you even care that we're going to die out here? And the, the second man said, no, not really. I, uh, I earn $100,000 a week. I tithe every week. And uh, my pastor is sure to find me here. <clears throat> so a generous lifestyle may get us out of some difficult circumstances, but more appropriately and more importantly, generosity is a major factor in helping others out of difficult circumstances. As Brad has mentioned, generous lifestyle is a core value here at Jericho Ridge. And it encompasses much more than money or finances. But today, we will focus on money and finances. This is one of the hardest subjects to address in a church. So I come in as an outsider, a prophet now, from the outside. And I can say some things that I might not have been able to say as a board member. And they'll be good things. But it's a private subject for a lot of people. It's a relatively silent subject for a lot of people. If we have financial problems, we don't really want anybody to know about it. If we're doing well, we certainly don't want anybody to know about it uh, because they'll line up at our door, right? Well, let me set the table a little bit. I want to do it's part of the educator coming out in me. I want to administer a little test this morning. It's a pop quiz. I did not tell you ahead of time. And so your heart probably should be beating pretty hard by now. It'll be five questions, and you answer true or false. That's all you have to do. You can do this in your mind, so we're not going to embarrass anybody. First question to this generosity aptitude test is this. Do you consider yourself rich? Are you rich? True or false? And I will help you just a little bit. That's what a good teacher would do. Uh, just kind of a, a leading assistance here. If your net worth is over $500,000 a year, then you are in the top one percentile of wealthy people in this world. So you can kind of inch it back from there. You're probably still quite wealthy. Second question. 
the lowest, this would be in Canada, the lowest income groups give three times less than the rate of the highest income groups. The lowest income groups give three times less than the rate of the highest income groups. True or false? I think you know the answer to this one. It's the other way around. The poorer people give more. Three times more. Third question. Immigrants to Canada tend to be more generous in support of charities than native-born Canadians. True or false? Immigrants are more generous than native-born Canadians. The answer, of course, is true. Fourth, approximately 50% of Canadian tax returns claim a charity receipt for a tax credit. 50% of people who hand in their income tax are claiming tax receipts for charitable giving. Sad to say, it's only 25%. And the final question, I hope you're doing well so far. The most common reason given by upper income people for not giving to charity is that they can't afford it. True or false? I think there's quite a bit of evidence to support that, so it's true. Well, whether you scored high or low, uh, just come on board with me as we head into this generosity living journey. As was already mentioned, and our scripture has been read, uh, I will direct your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 15. Here is a quick overview. First part is, what is the real story here in 2 Corinthians? And the second part is, what are the relative points that we should pay attention to? And the third part is, what is to be our response? What is the right response? So first of all, what is the real story? Just a quick introduction to the text here. Probably the most recognized passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is this. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully, or more commonly, God loves a cheerful giver. That's verse 7. I think God has figured it out. Cheerful people, happy people, generous people, God really likes folk like this. You add generosity to cheerfulness and you have a great match. I think God really loves this combination. The word cheerful comes uh, from a Greek word, hilaron, which you may have guessed refers to and aligns very closely with hilarious. In other words, giving can be an exhilarating and a hilarious experience. Of course, the opposite would be to give with a remorseful attitude. The begrudging person finds it very difficult to part with money and to wish somebody else the best with it. Some more background to the story. The Corinthians have been asked by Paul to help Christians in Jerusalem. The Christians in Jerusalem were suffering. They were likely persecuted for their newfound faith, and they may have been ostracized socially and economically. Others would suggest that the experiment in Christian communism, where people sold everything and gave it away to other believers, may have run its course and could not be sustained. But this one thing we do know, the Jewish Christians were really short on money to even buy the most basic needs of life, like food, clothing, and shelter. 
So Paul wrote this letter to the churches of Corinth in an effort to raise funds for this very noble relief cause. Well, then, what are the relevant points? To understand the Apostle Paul's fundraising strategy, let's examine these verses a little more closely. Paul highlights five principles of the generosity factor. He describes the first one as the premise. He gives an agricultural illustration. We reap proportionately to what we sow. In verse 6, remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. I would think that most of the Corinthians would be quite familiar with the principles of sowing and harvesting. That was their subsistence. But the general principle, the key point is this. More seed equals bigger harvest. There's a direct correlation there. It's not a good idea to cheap out on seed. The results become very public. I grew up on a farm when one of the seed injectors on our seeder malfunctioned. It didn't take long for the results to become very evident. There was no crop growing where the seed there didn't seed seed. There would be barren streaks. So the premise in this context is very clear. It is that the more we give to kingdom initiatives, to those things that matter most to God, the greater impact we have on advancing God's kingdom. Have you ever prayed the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come? Well, generosity builds right into helping the kingdom to come. The second principle, Paul describes the action. He says, give the amount you committed yourself to. In verse 7, you must each decide in your heart how much to give. There is some freedom here. Earlier in chapter 8, and I will refer to chapter 8 a few times this morning, Paul qualifies this. He says, give in proportion to what you have. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. And give according to what you have, not what you don't have. The idea is not that we give until we become completely poor, while we help others to become rich through our gifts. That would just defeat the purpose of giving, wouldn't it? It would just shift the problem. It would simply prolong inequality. So the bottom line is this, that everyone should have enough. Some may have more than enough, but we should all have enough. Again, in chapter 8, verses 13 and 14, of course, Paul says, I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only mean that there should be some equality. Right now, you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later, they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. Indeed, the world produces enough to go around. Did you know that? Farmers are already producing more than is required, more than twice the minimum nutritional needs by some measures. 
This comes from a special report in The Economist as recent as February 24, 2011. Randy Elkhorn, some of you may have read his book, The Treasure Principle. He agrees, but he goes one step further. He says, if Western Christians all practice tithing, the task of world evangelism and feeding the hungry would be within reach. Now, the question to answer is, what is enough for us? Where is our threshold for personal accumulation? It seems to increase with each generation, as I've observed. Our lifestyle very quickly catches up to our income, and in fact, often surpasses it. So, have you ever given thought to where the threshold is for you, the point at which you earned enough, after which you could give the rest away? I recently met a man, known him for many years, but uh, recently caught up with him, just in his early 70s. And he informed me that he's reached his threshold. He and his wife can live quite comfortably on the pension that he is receiving. But he continues to work almost full time. Do you know that he donates every dollar to charity of what he earns? He'd rather do that than volunteer. And I applaud him for that. Kind of smiled and says, you know, I haven't paid taxes in years. His charitable receipts offset the taxable income that he's receiving. Admittedly, this kind of conversation may be quite unfamiliar to most of us. I know from this church that many have children to raise, many have children to put through school. Many of you might have student loans still from your days of studies. You have debts to pay. And to come in agreement with our spouses as to what would be enough, well, let's just say good luck. But Paul's challenge is for us to determine what God wants us to give and then to follow through with action. The third principle of the generosity factor comes in verse 7, again, the second part of verse 7, Paul describes the attitude, a positive, cheerful approach to giving, which is highly valued by God. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. William Barclay, a well-known theologian, identifies four motives in giving. The first one, he says, is duty. It's like paying an account or a debt. And in fact, I think in the Old Testament, it was often thought that the first tenth part of the crop was a duty to be paid off. The second part is self-satisfaction. The second motive. We like the pleasant feeling of giving. This is, in a way, kind of like giving to ourselves. The third one is prestige. Not out of love, but out of pride. We're not really interested in helping others, but rather glorifying the giver, ourselves. We might not even give at all if it wasn't recognized or praised by someone. The fourth motive, and it is the best motive, is love's compulsion. God so loved and gave 
Well, God loves those who love to give. Those that are motivated not by compulsion. He likes joyful giving, not begrudging giving. Here's another question for you. Maybe just as hard as the first one I asked. What would need to change in terms of your own circumstances for you to become more cheerful in giving? Would it be a higher income? Would it be more margin between your income and your expenses? I think the true or false questions I gave you earlier one kind of gave you a lead into answering that question. Well, Corinthians 8, again, Paul reveals a counterintuitive fact. The folk in Macedonia who were of meager means had begged for the opportunity to give to the saints in Jerusalem. Now, that would be a church treasurer's dream, that people would beg to give. Their poverty, says Frank Gable, I no more impeded their generosity than their tribulation diminished their joy. Apparently, poorness did not hamper their desire to give, and they didn't feel exempt about giving. I think cheerfulness is contagious. I think generosity is every bit as contagious. And the two coming together is an absolute winning combination. Again, in chapter 8, verse 2, Paul writes, I know how eager you are to give, and I have proudly told the Lord's followers in Macedonia that you people in Achaia have been ready for a whole year. Now your desire to give has made them want to give. So generosity begets generosity. At the sake of embarrassing my son here, I'm going to just relate a little story. When my, our boys were younger, did I say, say for the sake of embarrassing? I mean, just um, at the risk of embarrassing. When our boys were younger, I wanted them to actually see the check that I was writing out to the church for an offering. I wanted them to see the numbers. I wanted to model cheerful generosity as I was doing this. Bottom line is I wanted it to be contagious. That this was normal and that we're happy to do it. Do you know that the happiest people you will likely ever meet are not stingy people, they're generous people. And I would challenge you to ever identify for me an unhappy tither. The people who complain about tithing are those who don't want to. The ones who are tithing are quite happy about it. Prove me wrong. That is why I enjoy working for the Mennonite Foundation. You knew there was going to be a plug here. That's why I enjoy working for the Mennonite Foundation of Canada. And by the way, our displays back there, all the resources on the table are free, and we can get you more if you need more, if you want to use some of that for group studies. I like working for the Mennonite Foundation, where we facilitate faithful, joyful giving. I get to work with happy, cheerful clients on a regular basis. You can't beat that. You know, let me just say this from experience. It is freeing to give. It is exhilarating. It releases us from self-centeredness. It can be spiritually revitalizing. Sometimes our faith has to grow a little bit too. Giving is an expression of our fearlessness. 
Paul, in the fourth principle of the generosity factor, describes the resources. We're fearless in giving, of course, because God is the supplier. There is more where this came from. Lots more. Chapter 9, verses 8 to 10, And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others, as the scriptures say. They share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever, for God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. It is God who supplies all the resources for a bumper crop. He provides the seed. He provides the rain, and if you want to be technical, he provides the water if you're irrigating. He provides the sunshine. The farmer cannot take any credit for any of these elements. Folks, don't miss the point here. God owns everything. In fact, I like to think of money as kingdom currency. It deeply affects how I view money. If this is God's money, it changes how I handle it. Let me just give you a little background to that concept. We are created in the image of God. And as such, we are change agents. There is a functional part of being in the, created in the image of God. We're not simply representations. We are representatives of God on earth, literally. We're his deputies. We're his managers. In fact, we are his powers of attorney for financial matters on earth. And God has placed kingdom currency in our hands. And it is up to us to fund the work of God on this earth. Think about it. I think God is more likely to entrust more money to Christians who are faithful in sharing it, using it for kingdom initiatives. To me, that only makes sense. And I think God has a very good business mind. I had lunch recently with an investor, investment advisor for the RBC Dominion Securities. And he told me that for years he has counseled people who have, are having financial difficulties. Listen to this very carefully. The one common factor, 100% of the time, was that these people did not tithe from their income. Let me just ask this question. Could it be that God sometimes withholds resources until we demonstrate faithfulness in generosity, even in small amounts? The fifth principle, and the final one of the five that Paul presents in 2 Corinthians, Paul describes now the results, the spin-off effects of the giving cycle, as I like to call it, the factors of our generosity. And I recognize that there are five in this text. Givers are enriched. That's the first one. Needs are met. Praise is expressed. And obedience is demonstrated. And the fifth one is prayers are offered on behalf of the givers. Let's read this passage quickly. <clears throat> Chapter 9, verse 10 to 15. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. Yes, 
you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God. For your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of their overflowing grace God has given to you. Thank God for this gift, too wonderful for words, the gift of our salvation through Christ. Let's take a quick look at the impact of generosity. First, givers are enriched, and the supply is increased, not just replenished. This means that the giver can supersize his or her generosity all over and over and over again. Now, here's another hard question. Is the point of giving so that we prosper and keep more for ourselves? To somehow make this about our own desires can be deeply attractive to us. Can God really be manipulated for our own pleasure? Randy Alcorn again says this so eloquently. He says, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. God prospers me not to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. Secondly, the recipient's needs will be met. I think that that's very good. Giving is a service that supplies for the needs of God's people. Do you know, I've yet to find the bank of God on the corner of First and Main. We are God's wealth distributors. We are it. The more generous we are, the more we reflect God. The more we reflect God's very own nature. Well, there's this third spin-off effect of giving. The recipients will express their praise and thanksgiving to God, both now and in eternity. Can you just imagine a little child that might have benefited from your gifts in heaven saying, oh, there goes Dwayne. He's the person, and he's doing this forever. He's saying, Dwayne is the guy that helped me to survive, and maybe even share the gospel with me, or or." supplied the resources to share the gospel with me, but can you imagine that going on for all of eternity? It might get a little embarrassing. <clears throat> Our generosity stimulates a standing ovation to God by grateful recipients. If we withhold generosity from God's people, we are in effect withholding and blocking the flow of praises to our God. Isn't hoarding the pinnacle of selfishness. The fourth result of cheerful giving, the recipients will recognize the giver's obedience to the good news of Christ. Our generosity is evidence of obedience to the gospel of Christ. It is our very new nature in our very new nature to give. 
It is who we are. And then, finally, the fifth result of cheerful giving. The recipients will pray for the givers with deep affection. I like to flip this over just to help us to understand this a little better. By not giving, we are reducing prayers offered on our behalf. We are disobedient to the good news of Christ. We are diminishing the amount of praise offered to God. Needs, of course, will go unmet. And perhaps our capacity to give will decrease. It's not a very pretty picture. So what is the right response? Our giving is bathed in a contemplative reflection on the greatest gift of all. For God so loved the world. Do you know that gratitude is the highest form of motivation and I think perhaps the purest form of motivation? Our generosity is an expression of gratitude and worship to God for the unspeakable gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. The focus is more on what has been given to us than what little bit we can give away. So give with a pure heart. 1 Corinthians 13, if I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't have love for others, I would have gained nothing. Let me just say this. We cannot bribe God with our gifts. Gifts don't make up for sin committed, as much as we'd like to think it could. God is not obligated to grant us any favors if we give. Gifts given with selfish motives may, in fact, help the recipient, may get us some attention and even approval from people, but I think that is where the rewards end. Generosity has more to do with our hearts than with our pocketbooks. Once we understand that love for God is at the heart of giving, many of our excuses to not give will evaporate. So where do we go from here? Well, I know that some of you are on the right track of generosity. Others of you this morning may feel just a little bit motivated to analyze your own giving patterns and to even upgrade your giving. Whatever your circumstances, I'd like to challenge you to, if you haven't already done so, to develop a giving plan. Be very intentional and prayerful about your giving plan. And if you find it hard to be generous, just start and make it a regular practice. I just want to describe in simple terms what a giving plan looks like for my wife and myself. There are three categories of gifts that we like to focus on. The first one is the first fruits of our income belong to our own congregation. We love to give to the ministry of the local church. Well, everyone has the opportunity to decide what portion they'd like to give. Let me just suggest, if you like percentages, that 10% of gross salary income would be the minimum target to give to your local church, not the ceiling. 
I realize that if people don't want to give, you can't stop them. That's a little bit of a Yogi Bearism there. But let's suppose you came to work one day and your boss tells you, calls you aside and tells you, you're going to have a 10% pay cut today. What would you do? Most of us would find a way around it, wouldn't we? Maybe some of you have experienced that. So you might be experts in this. How would you manage? Why not apply the same principle to giving 10%? By the way, tithe is an old English word meaning the tenth part. So that's why I've used, I'm using that term sometimes. The tithe is also referred to as the training wheels of generosity. It is the beginning. Why not increase giving by 1% every year till you hit 20%? And watch God, the provider, remember? Watch him in action. And why stop there? I really appreciate the core value here of generous living and giving at Jericho Ridge. And while I was on the board, I was very pleased to see that we were able to give a tenth part to other ministries as well. I think all nonprofit organizations should think about tithing of their revenue. Can you imagine the compounding effect of that and how that would actually help the kingdom to come? Tithing forces us to take the provider seriously. The fact that God is our provider. If God is not our provider, then this is all crazy. It just doesn't make sense. If he is, it really makes sense. Often, our generosity is impeded by worry and fear more than greed. If you read Matthew chapter 6, the last part of the chapter, of the parable on the, or the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses the word worry six times as he's talking about the birds and flowers and uh, that they don't need to worry. They start off every day with empty stomachs. The birds, that is. I don't know about the flowers. So worry might be something that impedes our giving. Fear might be it. So just by the act of giving, we are, we are just simply punching in the face of, fearless, of, of fear and saying we're going to be fearless in giving. Giving beyond the first fruits is a second category in our giving plan. We are committed to making gifts and offerings to other good causes and kingdom initiatives beyond our own congregation. This is where parachurch organizations come in. Relief agencies, missions, Christian education, etc. I want to give you a quick example of, of a hilarious giving experience we had recently. It's our 30th anniversary this year. It's already passed, but we're going to celebrate anyway. We bought a vacation package, and just before the final payment was to come due, our travel agent let, notified us that there was going to be a substantial discount to our fees. And we thought, that's great. fact was, we'd already earmarked money for that. We had enough. We were happy to pay it if we had to. But it's like the Spirit was moving in our hearts, saying... Okay, this money was earmarked. Maybe it's earmarked for another cause. So we took a good chunk of that and actually gave it to a relief agency for Southeast Africa Relief. And do you know 
the hilarious part is that the government kicks in another dollar for it to match every dollar we gave, so we actually doubled our gift. That's hilarious, isn't it? And it's fun. It's fun to watch when we pay attention to how God wants to work through us. By the way, have you ever thought about giving through your estate bucket? Through a proper will, of course. The Mennonite Foundation and even the MB Stewardship Ministries can help you with your, prepare your estate plan. And we, we do this for nothing. What about your capital assets, stocks, and so on? We can help you with gifts in that regard, and there's some very good tax benefits for doing so. How about tithing off your inheritance gift? Just watch God in action as you do that, as an act of faith. The third category is random acts of generosity, also known as reckless acts of generosity. It doesn't always make sense to give. We don't always need to have a charitable receipt when we give. Sometimes we should just give, even if the person we're giving to might misuse it. But if God calls us to give, the rest is not up to us, is it? I think we should be careful, but sometimes we need to be reckless. And my challenge to all of us is to at least practice periodic impulsive generosity. It is simply good for the soul and will counteract our tendency to worship money. Hilarious generosity will help us to worship God rather than mammon. Finally, the ultimate challenge, and you knew this was coming. This is a question I need to address to all of us. What has God entrusted to you that really was meant to flow to others? What are you holding on to that someone else could really benefit from? Maybe even more than you. Let me just summarize the generosity factor. Give with exhilaration and joy as a grateful response to God's greatest indescribable gift of salvation to you. Let me repeat that. You need to get this. Give with exhilaration and joy as a grateful response to God's greatest indescribable gift of salvation to you. May God empower you with supersized generosity so that your giving will be a significant factor in God's kingdom building initiatives. And God bless you towards that end.